If you want to find a career with purpose or you want to move into something that really aligns with your personal values, well, this episode is for you. You're going to learn so much about navigating career changes, moving from employee to employer, and then finding your dream career in an industry with purpose. And I'm talking about climate. Today on the show, we are joined by Anshuman Bapna, who is the founder of Terra.do, a global platform for learning and working in the climate economy. They combine immersive cohort-based learning programs with a powerful community of climate insiders and jobs from the top climate employers across the world. Think of them like a LinkedIn for climate. Their huge ambitious goal is to move 100 million people into climate work this decade. A bit about Anshuman. He is a serial entrepreneur and he co-founded and sold his first startup while an undergraduate at IIT in Bombay, seeing it through its first boom and bust on the internet. Then he went on to complete his MBA at Stanford and spent some time selling solar lights in Vietnam and started a non-profit that helped Indian members of parliament develop their constituencies. And like many people in their career, Anshuman describes his own classic midlife career crisis that sent him on a search of what was true truly worth working on. All this while working with Deloitte and then Google in New York. He has had the most amazing and diverse experience and when he talks about his career stories and the highlights and the learnings and the fails and things that he would do differently, oh my gosh, there's so many deep insights that you're going to get so much out of. He talks about how you navigate AI and the fear around what does this mean for my job and also looking at the world and all the changes with this sense of optimism and curiosity. You're going to love every bit of this episode. I got off and I was just on an absolute high. Let's just get into it. This is a podcast about making work work. You'll learn about leadership, career growth, and how to navigate those weird work challenges. I run a HR consulting business called Boldside, where I help leaders build epic team cultures. If you lead a team or run a business and you think I can help, let's connect on LinkedIn. My name is Shelley Johnson, and this is work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Anshuman, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to be chatting to you today. Thank you for having me, Shari. So we're going to be talking a bit about your story and you've had an amazing and super interesting career journey. And we're going to dig into that and a bit about Terra and all the things that you've done. But first, I want to know a bit about your career story. And I'd love if you could tell our listeners, what is some of the big wins and challenges you've had personally in your career? Okay. Uh, let me jump in. So I grew up in a small town in India and uh, my dream at that time was to go to the biggest city that I had ever uh, heard about, which was uh, Mumbai, Bombay at that time. And I remember that I had a poster uh, that I had made uh, with my own hands uh, in which I uh, I had written Bombay in bold letters And uh, I uh, got lucky and I managed to get through one of the engineering colleges in Bombay uh, called IIT Bombay. And I reached there, 
completely besotted with uh, what a big city like this would be. And I had all kinds of run-ins with many celebrities, uh, classic example of someone fresh off the boat, effectively just understanding how the big city and the big world works. And uh, lo and behold, three years in, I felt like I was a native of that place, completely comfortable. And uh, uh, at that time, one of my uh, seniors in, in, in college asked me what um, I, I was going to do after I graduate. And not only did they ask me, they also told me what I was going to do. So they told me that you're either going to work for a large company or you're going to get a master's in the US or you're going to get an MBA uh, from one of the uh, MBA programs. And on a lark, I said, no, of course not. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to start a company. And this is back in 1999 when uh, it was unheard of. And this uh, uh, senior of mine laughed at me and said, that's not going to happen. Students don't start companies. So I said, not only am I going to start one, I'm going to prove to you that a lot of my classmates are going to start companies as well. And I went on this mission of trying to convince that uh, everyone on campus that entrepreneurship was the way to go. And I would bring all these great speakers on campus and one of them lit a fire under me as well. Um, and I ended up uh, uh, eating my own dog food and starting a company while I was in my final year. And things got crazy because I think somehow we caught a moment in India's uh, transition where uh, I, we ended up within a month on New York Times front page. And uh, I must say that was kind of everything went downhill from there. But uh, <laughs> it was I, I, I think it was a good inoculation uh, against fame and how fickle it is. Uh, so, and I realized that, uh, so then, so we ran that company, we make, made every mistake that you could imagine 19 year olds would make, and then eventually ended up come selling the company in a fire sale. And then, uh, last refuge of the scoundrel, I was trying to figure out, uh, what to make of my career. So decided to get an MBA, uh, and I came here to the U S at Stanford university. Uh, but then again, there, uh, uh, what was really clear was that, uh, Stanford is a very interesting school in the sense that there is a lot of, uh, uh, bleeding heart liberals in at Stanford, even though Silicon Valley is right next door. So everyone wants to save the world sometimes by building photo apps, but sometimes by actually doing interesting things. So I ended up uh, interning in Vietnam, trying to sell solar lights in the rural areas, working on a nonprofit pharmaceutical firm and stuff like that. So that led me to essentially this whole awakening that uh, I really cared about social impact. And a brief stint at a, a consulting company uh, uh, called Deloitte and then at Google, trying to pay off my bills as quickly as I could, and then moved back to India to start uh, another tech company. Um, and that move to India was was classic because we were living in New York, living the high life, and then my daughter was born. And uh, it struck both me and my wife that, look, it, she didn't care which part of the world we lived in. So uh, we could go anywhere and we could do anything as long as we could spend time with her. And because I had started a company before, I knew that paradoxically, being an entrepreneur gives you more control. So I could actually spend more time as a startup entrepreneur with her than working a job. So we moved back to India thinking that we would be back in New York in a year's time. And just as these things work, a year became a decade. And uh, uh, we had this incredible journey as a, uh, as a startup entrepreneur. The company eventually got acquired and I was working a big corporate job again. Uh, back in 2019, when uh, I had a midlife crisis, so did my wife. And uh, we were living in Bangalore, and my wife decided to get a PhD. So she moved back to the US to Stanford to get a PhD. And I followed in her wake, brought the kids along next year. 
and uh, decided to start something in climate. And that's how this whole, and we now we live in Palo Alto, California, and God knows where we'll go next. You have had such an amazing career journey. I think about like, if you could like get a map and just track your movements, aren't you, man? Just to go, okay, we're here in 1999 and then we we're back and we we're in, in Stanford. And I love how you call it a photo app versus like, like the creation of like Instagram and all those things that have come out of Stanford, as well as like people doing really powerful social impact careers and building amazing businesses. I'd love to know, just to kind of go back a little bit, because a lot of our listeners are in the early part of their career. And you said that as a 19-year-old, there are a few mistakes that you made along the way. And one of the things we'd love to know is, I was talking with someone this morning, actually, about how do you learn from other people's mistakes rather than having to do them yourself, which for me, like, I feel like I wish I had learned from other people's stories rather than just trying to do my own journey and like make all the mistakes that I've made along the way. I'd love to know what are some of the things for you, you've done the corporate gigs, like for Google, Deloitte, like big, big organisations, as well as small not-for-profits in, in Vietnam. Like what would you say are some of the learnings, mistakes, lessons that you've uh, made along the way that you would recommend other people avoid? <laughs> <laughs> No, I've, I have so many. I'm trying to uh, stack rank them and try to pick the top three in terms of mistakes that I've made. I think the uh, uh, it's almost like uh, I've discovered one big mistake in hindsight every decade of my professional life. Uh, and uh, maybe I'll just give share a couple. So uh, the first one that I realized a few years back was that I always had this very weird relationship with money. And I grew up in a household where money was not important. Um, in fact, uh, and I kind of took that to mean that money is crass. Money is uh, for people who don't have an imagination, uh, people who don't really think about uh, what's important in the world. And I therefore uh, did everything in my power. And imagine being as an entrepreneur, right, kind of being not caring about money and doing everything in my power to equate it with materialism. And I wish that I had a slightly different perspective on money early on, because there is another definition of money, uh, which, is not, which is nothing to do with material things, which is to do with freedom, which is money gives you freedom, potentially. You don't need a lot of it. You don't need a lot of money, but you do need a lot of freedom. And a little bit of money can actually get you that freedom. And I wish I knew that earlier in my career, because the kind of things that I've always wanted to do have become even more possible. Uh, and a lot many doors have opened up for me now that that thing is out of my head. So that was one thing which I wish I had a healthier relationship to money. I think the other one was, uh, from a professional standpoint, was that uh, I've always felt that knowing when you when you jump into a new area uh, and when you're looking at it, it's important. Knowledge is important, for sure. But baseline knowledge is actually extremely unimportant. So what I mean by that is that uh, I, at some point in time in my career, realized that I have a certain way to learn new things which is different, say, for example, from other people. But everyone has their own paradigm. Everyone learns in a certain way. And I realized what mine was. And the moment I unlocked that, no new area would scare me because I knew that I could very, very quickly get up to speed on any new area. And because I had started a company when I was 19, I knew how powerful naivete is, how important it is to not know how many mistakes you're going to make. <laughs> so this combination of finding your own learning model and valuing being a newbie uh, and understanding that being a newbie is actually almost a superpower. 
is was a really powerful unlock for me in my career. I love that so much about the naivety that comes with being a newbie. And I think a lot, Anshman, about this idea of the curse of knowledge. For me, I've been working in HR for like 10 years. And so I just have this assumed knowledge that people like get stuff and like, I want to feel that feeling of like not knowing and being out of your comfort zone and like not saying all this technical jargon that people are like, what does that even mean? Like there's something really, I, I love how you put it, it's a, it's a superpower to be a newbie. And we often, I think as we get older, we get more and more nervous about that feeling, that feeling of not knowing. And I love what you're saying about the baseline knowledge and realizing, okay, it's more about how you learn than about having a baseline knowledge. What are some of the realizations that you've had Anshuman about how you learn like what are you what are your ways of learning because they're so different for each of us like I'm probably like a learn by doing like just jump in and start doing the thing and then refine as I go even though I don't like that because I'm also a perfectionist what do you find what has worked for you in terms of how you learn yeah yeah so for me um so first of all I love learning under pressure so I artificially create that for myself where I have a deadline that I have to sound reasonably uh, smart by or I have to make some kind of a decision, say an investment decision with my own money and I have only two days to figure out uh, or to build a bit of a framework. So my approach is to try to get uh, a very high level framework in place first and my biggest hack for that, believe it or not, is to actually go to the images section of Google and search what I'm looking for. Because lo and behold, somebody in their uh, previous life have has put together this very nice visual of an entire landscape of what I'm trying to learn. And that becomes kind of my framing uh, uh, to begin with. And I'm a very visual person. So it allows me to build these boxes where I can start slotting things in. Uh, I The second thing I do is to also uh, go talk to as many people as I can and uh, essentially start noting down things that I hear again and again, and then replay that back to the next set of experts that I speak to and say, well, I've heard this. What do you think about that? And that allows me to go more nuanced in the key themes that might be playing out in that space right now. And the third thing, which is kind of my favorite, is actually come something that I started noticing when I was in middle school, which was uh, what I call, pardon my, uh, my, my, my English, uh, the WTF moments. <laughs> so when you and I'll give you an example, just to explain what that means. I remember that uh, in uh, in in uh, middle school we were introduced to the four kingdoms of life, right? So the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, another kingdom, and there's a fourth one called fungi. And I was like, and I remember raising my hands and saying, "WTF?" I mean, I didn't say "WTF" in class, but I said, <laughs> "Why do fungi get their own kingdom? What's so special about them? Like this animals, this plants." What about fungi? And my teacher, of course, brushed me off and said, that's a stupid question, just shut up. And I remember many years later, when I was at Stanford doing my business school, I was curious about biology all over again. So I started taking medical school classes and started teaching myself biology. And I realized that fungi actually have a special place because when 200 years ago, when Linnaeus was sending out all his PhD students to classify all organisms in all parts of the world, almost every civilization or culture that they went to the priest or the shaman would take mushrooms and treat them as, because they had these hallucinogenic properties, treat them as something that was between God and their creation. 
So it was elevated to that level. I thought, I wish my biology teacher had told me about that. I would have gone on a different route altogether. <laughs> Things would have been very different. So that's kind of my, so my WTF strategy, which is notice the WTF moments yes. when you're learning something new. There's something there. <laughs> I love that so much. We, just as a side note, personally, my husband and I have started like, there's this amazing medicinal mushrooms place uh, in, in Byron Bay or Mullumbimby, which is like a, in, in Australia, so, such a beautiful area. And it's called Super Feast. And we've been doing their medicinal mushrooms like lion's mane and all these different things. And I've just gotten so into it because I'm like, what what is this stuff? Like I had no idea. And then I'm like, there's all these like amazing, like the, the Chinese medicine behind it. I'm like, this is amazing. I have no idea. But I love what you're saying about the WTF moments. And I would kind of feel like they're like those little curiosity sparks where you're like, what is that about? Like, that's yeah. that's weird. Like, I don't understand why is fungi its own category compared to everything else? And going down the rabbit hole with certain things where you're like, that seems a bit odd. What's that about? I kind of think about Aunt Shaman as like, you know, uh, when your kids are little, I've got two little kids, one's six, one's three, or about to turn three. And you know, when they're little and they just ask endless amounts of questions. Like they're just, the questions are just relentless. Like my, when, when Sunny, my daughter was four, she would ask the deepest questions. She'd ask things like, what does the color purple feel like? Oh. And I'd be like, I don't know. And she's like, it's just very, oh, like why do some dads not have hair on their heads? <laughs> like just like very curious questions and no judgment. Just, just, she would just have this beautiful spark of curiosity. And I think for me as an adult in my thirties, I was like, I, I reckon I've lost my little curious spark that I had as a child. Like it's that sense of wonder or like what you describe as the WTF, like what the actual F is going on here. <laughs> how do you, how do you foster curiosity in your own life? Cause I can see in your career journey, you've, you've moved around, you've followed those like kind of gut vibes or intuition around, I'm going to Bombay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to now go to Stanford and totally change up my whole life. How do you unlock that curiosity? I think you you touched on that uh, really well uh, through children. So I have a now a 15-year-old girl and a nine-year-old boy. And uh, I remember when my daughter was born, uh, we were, I mean, parents wish all kinds of things for their children, right? And I remember thinking that I wish curiosity upon them. And it turns out that uh, I think I must have said this multiple times as she was growing up, that it became a self-belief for her uh, that I am a curious child, that curiosity is good. And therefore, she started asking more questions and became this virtuous loop. And uh, I realized that uh, uh, my sense of optimism and curiosity has become deeper because I have engaged with their sense of curiosity and optimism about the world. And a classic example was, uh, we just go on these complete tangents, right? So, the, so she and I would go on a coffee date every Saturday and... Uh, all shooting, shooting the breeze with all kinds of inane questions. And there was this one time when she said, I am bored. And I, on a lark, I said, and she must have been seven at that time. And I said, how can you be bored? You're living in the most interesting times humanity has ever lived in. And my daughter being my daughter challenged me and said, prove it to me. So I said, okay, I'll <laughs> prove it to you. So I drew this graph for her on how technological progress has accelerated. And, uh, and I told her, look, by the time you would be 30, it might be that we might not even be living in a just a pure human. We might be living in a post-human world. And 
I started, as I was explaining to her, I was thinking, there's this whole thing about AI, and this is back in 2009, 10, mm. uh, that there's this whole thing about AI that I really am curious about. Uh, maybe I should kind of go look at what's happening instead of just telling her uh, what's going to happen. And I did. And I just realized that uh, that led me on this path and trying to figure out what's happening with AI, what's happening with climate, which is just a way to stoke your curiosity. So this urge could come from anywhere, but children are a good source. They are. And I think like following that question mark of like, oh, why are we living in the most interesting time in the world like and, and going with the question rather than I think and if we talk about AI and climate and, and I want to get in now to to what your what you do every day which is help people build climate careers I I want to know how do you look at these tough because they're tough questions like the AI stuff the way that's going to change our world climate the way that's changing our world right now I think sometimes I look at these like really difficult things that we're, we're dealing with and big challenges. And you just said optimism around curiosity. How do you look at things like this though with optimism when there's a lot of fear surrounding yeah. these changes in the world? So Shelly, I, uh, I write a annual newsletter for my kids, which is uh, just a practice that I developed because uh, I realized that if you try to distill thoughts uh, in a way that uh, your kids can understand you in the process, learn yourself what you truly think about it. And my last year uh, letter was about uh, uh, three things that I thought were the most important things that they should pay attention to. And um, uh, it was climate change, uh, it was AI, and it was the war that was happening in Ukraine at that time, uh, and of course continues to even now. And I was trying to unpack for them why these things were important. And uh, both in climate change, and I mean, these all three topics uh, uh, of them, I mean, they're not pleasant topics, right? They're not easy topics. Uh, and uh, the question was, what lens do you use to look at them? Mm. And AI was a classic example where I was saying, look, uh, uh, we are increasingly appearing in a, uh, entering a world where uh, there will be infinite amount of text, video, images, et cetera, et cetera. And in theory, you're a creative person and you would find it extremely uh, dangerous or to be entering this new territory where none of your creative skills mattered. All of these things could be generated by an AI. Uh, that's one way to look at it. But potentially another way to look at it as is AI as a co-pilot, as a companion. And in fact, not just that, not just as a tool, but potentially realizing that in a world of infinite images, videos, text, audio, sound, etc., etc., what will truly matter is good judgment and good taste. And where does good judgment and good taste come from, but from traveling, from reading, from experiencing different cultures, meeting other people. So all that we thought, especially living in Silicon Valley, was old school, is back in business again. So just this whole, this framing of how every crisis is also an opportunity is also mm. applies for, for climate, which is, and that's something that I would love to talk more, more about, which is, uh, it feels like we're at the on the precipice of a transformation unlike anything we've seen in human history. Uh, and uh, therefore, it is as much a crisis as it is an opportunity with what's happening with climate change. I'm so keen to get into that around it's as much an opportunity as it is looking at down the barrel of a really significant major crisis. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to dig into more of that about the opportunities that you see. 
If you want to grow in your career, I just wanted to remind you about our book, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Glenn James and I have written this book to help you with any kind of career crisis, but also those things that you want, like getting a promotion, making more money, moving into a leadership role, or if it's time to quit your job. You can find our book wherever you get good books from, or you can listen on the audiobook, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Now let's get back to the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Anshuman, tell us about those opportunities when it comes to climate. So uh, let's step back for a second and uh, see where we are at, right? Uh, so we are living very much in an era, uh, in a historical era, in which uh, humanity's actions determine what happens on the planet and therefore the feedback loop that feeds back to us and to all living organisms. So this is the Anthropocene. Uh, we are a planetary force, whether we like it or not. And what that has meant is uh, uh, deterioration of natural systems around us, uh, but also the contract, the bond that we have with each other as fellow human beings uh, in living in societies. So uh, at one level, the crisis is unlike anything that we've seen in humanity's history because it requires collective action at a global scale, which you've never done before, uh, and something that spans everything from technology to policy to, uh, to justice. Uh, and uh, we, we, have, we have gotten this wrong a lot many more times than we have gotten it right. So in that sense, the challenge in front of us is just incredible. At the same time, what we're talking about is transforming every single sector of the economy. Uh, we are talking about transforming how we do energy, uh, how we do transportation, how we do construction, manufacturing, food and agriculture, uh, and even horizontals like finance. So by some estimates, we are talking about roughly a third of the global economy changing hands or changing uh, in a remarkable way uh, how they're uh, delivered uh, to all of us in the next 10 to 20 years. So in a way, think of the Industrial Revolution happening instead of 100 years, happening over 10 to 15 years. So that's the scale of transformation we're talking about. Now, this scale of transformation is both at an economic level, but also at this social contract level, which is, as we've seen with climate change, the uh, worst impacts of climate change uh, show up for the underprivileged, people who did not necessarily have a role in creating this crisis in the first place. Uh, one option could be, uh, which is a very Silicon Valley kind of an option, 
which is to say, well, technology will solve all these things and we'll create maybe a dozen more Elon Musks in every single field that we can imagine. And we'll have trillionaires and multi and multi-billionaires who will somehow solve this entire challenge for us. And I think if you look at it from a pure uh, transactional standpoint, sure, maybe the amount of carbon dioxide in the air might come down because we invented all these cool tech. But will the world that we live in, uh, which is fundamentally unequal and unjust, mm. will that also uh, get solved or will, will that potentially get exacerbated by this approach to solving it? So to me, it feels like uh, we need a combination. We need brains that think as much about technology, but as they do about politics, as much about individual human psychology and changing consumer behavior as it is about activism and creating mass movements, all pulling in the same direction. So to me, that feels like, and this it feels incredible to me. It feels like we need a marshalling of our best brains across every single sphere of human activity to be able to pull this off. And that to me is just fundamentally exciting. To me, that's fundamentally what it is about being a, being a human and what it is about being mm. a civilization that can corral all that together. So I, I keep saying this to people who are early in their careers, that I started my, my career back uh, on the internet, uh, back before the internet used to be a cool, cool thing. Uh, and I'm lucky. <laughs> but uh, I wish I was as lucky as you, because I've never seen profit and purpose combine in such an incredible way wow. as it is combining in climate. So why would you not do, why would you not be working in climate? I love that combination of like profit and purpose. And I think for so many people, especially what we're seeing for Gen Zs coming through, they're driven by purpose. And that is so exciting to me. I'm like, this is part of what makes us have that impact we want to have in the world. It's not just about the paycheck. It's about how can you connect the work that you do with having the purpose that you want to have on this earth. I love Ryan Holiday's work and I've been reading The Obstacle is the Way um, and I was reading it the other night just sitting down and he talks a lot about, um, and it's very similar to what you've just described as looking at it as a, as an opportunity rather than having the fear mindset. And I, I look at this of what you're describing with climate and the huge challenge of collective change across the board that we've never had to achieve before and go, okay, the obstacle is the way. If we have that mindset of going, okay, this is the challenge, but inherent in the challenge is that opportunity. How can people who've never worked in climate that may want to find a career in this and connect like profit and purpose, how can they go about building a career in this space? Yeah, I think short answer is come to my website, Terra.do. Yes, <laughs> yes no. totally. But, and we're going to have but, the link in the show notes so you can jump straight in and make sure you head there to find out because your website has so much good education on it as well about how people can transition into these careers. But keep going. Sorry, Anshman, I cut yeah, you off. No, I, was, I was just being facetious a little bit there. <laughs> but, uh, but this is exactly the point uh, where I found, found myself about three and a half years ago, which is someone who had nothing to do with climate so far, uh, climate being at that time in my mind a, a place for scientists and baby policymakers, but not for the common person like me, um, and trying to figure out where my uh, place and where and where I could bring my skills in this space. And at that time, spoke to hundreds of people uh, on everything from nuclear fusion to environmental justice, trying to figure out an answer and realize that there wasn't really a single place where all of this was combining. So I ended up starting this company. 
But the premise, uh, one of the startling things for me was that this is still such a new space that even though there are frontiers of knowledge, nobody has bothered to walk towards those frontiers for decades. So it turns out that the frontiers are not that far. So no matter what background you come in with, you pick up a problem statement and that problem statement could be as complex. It could be in chemical engineering and you were never a chemical engineer, or it could be in some deep uh, uh, policy uh, related field and you were never a policymaker. But turns out that nobody had, has bothered to look deeply at that space for many, many, many decades. So you start walking that path and very soon you find yourself at the frontier as the pioneer in that space. So that's one kind of a thing, which is that climate is still so new that if you come in here right now, you'll be charting a path uh, independently very, very soon. So that's great. Uh, I think the second is that uh, I was also amazed by how intersectional climate is. Every single skill uh, that you can imagine that someone already has is needed here and now, whether it's uh, uh, hard technical skills uh, and therefore battery manufacturing and so on, or it's a, a sense of understanding of human psychology. Therefore, trying to figure out how to change consumer consumption patterns that uh, would allow for more sustainable choices to happen. Uh, to someone who has done uh, uh, or a community organizing, uh, if climate is not a community collective action problem, I don't know what it is. So all of these different fields come together. And just to give you a sense, Shelley, that uh, so we run learning programs, right, for boot camps for people who are looking to make this transition. Our typical cohort uh, would be, say, 150 to 200 people from 25 plus countries. And we would have in the same cohort, by design, investment bankers, ex-oil and gas people, activists, policymakers, journalists, uh, farmers, all in the same cohort. And all of them have something to contribute, which is completely different from what the others have. And that's how intersectional this space is. I haven't seen anything like this in my career. So I, I'm, I'm not being, uh, I'm not trying to just uh, uh, say this uh, just, uh, for a soundbite, but because I, I do feel that climate requires every single skill that we acquire mm -hmm. through all of our lived experiences. So please, please do come in. I think that's a really good point around every single skill is required because I think often what people and historically, if I think about like recruitment and HR and all that stuff, people have typically thought, well, if I haven't worked in that industry, it's hard to cross over. So as an example, if you haven't worked in a tech startup, but you've worked in government, it, it can feel hard to make the leap from one discrete industry to another, even though the role, let's say you, you work in local government as a software developer and there's a tech role, in a, there's a t tech startup who's looking for a software developer. But in your mind, you're like, well, I've only worked in government. I haven't worked in that industry. So therefore I, I can't bring any value. I think what you're describing is so true in a fast growth industry, you don't have to have industry experience. They still need software developers. They still need marketing professionals and you can make the leap into something that aligns with your purpose and the impact that you want to have. And I think we need to break down those like mindset barriers we have around, well, if I haven't worked in that industry before, it's unlikely that I'll be able to land a job in that. And I'd love yeah. to know your take on that because what are you seeing with people and how they how they make a leap into that industry when they've never worked in it before? Yeah, I think the secret to transitions is, uh, in my opinion, three things, which is 
structure, networks, and confidence, right? So what structure? Structure is that uh, there is a universe of things that you could potentially do, and you need someone to, or something, to narrow down that universe of options into a, uh, into a, a finite set of 10 things that you need to learn or get or, 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 or figure out as you go along. So someone, something like the kind of program that we have is supposed to provide that structure, but there are umpteen other options. The idea is that you find that structure to make that transition. That's one. Uh, second, as I said, is networks, which is uh, it helps tremendously to know people already in that space. Now, by definition, people who are transitioning into climate may not know a lot of people already in climate. But one of the most remarkable things about this space is that this space is not uh, e-commerce or fintech or SaaS or et cetera, et cetera, which are very, I would say, transactional, bloodless spaces. They're great, but they are, uh, there's very little emotion in them. People who are in climate are, you would find, uh, people like myself and many others, they are just incredible people at giving. So they're there because not only do they want to work in climate, they want to put a hundred people behind them as well to come into climate. So it's an extremely collaborative network where people go out of their way to help you to come in. So just ask. So you'll find that to be true, very true for climate. And the third thing is confidence, which is uh, just this belief. Uh, so an internal belief that uh, you can make this transition, but also an external belief. And that's why for us, it's very important to put people in a peer group. So when you when you are part of one of these cohorts, you're seeing two things. You're, you're obviously, you're, you're learning a lot, but you're also seeing that there are 99 other people like me who also do not know much about climate, coming from very different walks of life, who are also making very rapid progress in front of my eyes. And that gives you a sense of confidence that, of course, this can be done. You feel validated. So these three things are, are the important ingredients in most places. But I think climate is just, uh, I mean, primarily because the network is so uh, ready to pull you in that if you make the first couple of steps, I think you'll very quickly start to get sucked in. Can we dig into the network part of that? How do you build that network? Like, tell us what what, what practical ways could people do if they want to get into climate jobs? They're obviously going to go and jump on Terra Do's website to find out more. And what way would you recommend people start to create a network in this industry? Yeah, that's a great question. I think so. Uh, there are a ton of communities that have propped up in climate all across the world. Australia has a bunch of them as well already. Uh, so uh, if for any of you who are in uh, Sydney, um, if you've heard of the Greenhouse, there's an there's a interesting community that they have kind of put up there. And there are a bunch of other uh, communities that are also propping up in Melbourne um, and in other parts of the country, uh, but all across the world too. So there are, uh, I can, I can uh, share that those names in, for your show notes as well, but there are communities like called My Climate Journey, uh, which I think is a fantastic community, which is global in nature. Terra has a community of its own, which is about 100,000 people all there. Uh, in fact, we run this very interesting little thing, and it'll tell you, Shari, the power of, the, uh, of how, how giving this community is. It's called the uh, Open Door Climate, in which we... Um, ask our community of people who are already in climate to open up their calendars for 30 minute slots for any stranger to book a time with them to get career advice. And we have about 250 of them who have opened up their calendars already that you can just go and start talking to them. So you can figure out if you want to talk to someone who works on nuclear fusion if you want and uh, and get a chat with them uh, for free for no cost at all. So that's, that's the nature of this. Uh, also meet as many people as you can and very, very quickly you'll start, uh, you'll f- find that they hang out in these groups, 
some mostly online, but sometimes physically as well. Um, um, and that is where this entire network starts to build. It's significantly easier to get this network ramped up in climate than almost any other space that I've seen. Yeah, that's amazing to see that people are opening up their calendar to let people just ask them questions and career advice about how they can make that transition. I love that. I want to know, I guess, for anyone thinking about, okay, they're listening to you tell your story. You've run multiple businesses. You've worked in corporate land. Now you're running Terra Do and you're making such an impact. What would you say to anyone listening that's like, okay, I want to connect the work that I do with a, with a purpose. I want to have an impact. What would be your call to action for them of how they can get involved? Fantastic. I think that's a great question. And I think uh, uh, a very important thing I wanted to call out that now touches on this is that uh, I do believe that every job is a climate job or soon will be, uh, which means that you don't have to quit your current job to be working in climate. What that means is that uh, uh, if you're working for the government, if you're working for a corporation, uh, you can pick what that corporation is doing and change it in subtle but important ways to make it a lot more sustainable. And it could be everything from uh, sustainable procurement inside your company to getting the company to talk, to articulate what their sustainability strategy is, if they're trying to achieve to a, a net zero goal or not. And one of the most amazing things that you would find is that uh, if you start, if you raise your hand in your own organization, you'll find my guess is roughly a third of people who would be willing to jump in immediately to help you figure out how to make the organization itself a lot more sustainable. So that's kind of my uh, uh, my call to action for you, which is by all means, make lifestyle changes that allow you to be more sustainable, but don't stop there. You mm-hmm. have incredible amount of, you're not just a consumer of products, right? So sure, uh, make those choices. You're also a human being with incredible skills and, and influence networks in the workplaces that you have and the communities that you have. Use those influence networks immediately. Uh, and you have uh, uh, you could potentially tip the scale in a lot of these different places. As we know, the, the famous social science research that it takes 3% of highly committed people to actually turn a movement around. And that could be very much be happening inside a community, inside the local government that you work at or inside the organization that you work at. That's such a great call to action. And I want to just let everyone know in the show notes, Terra.do, if you want to know more about how you can get educated around climate, but also climate jobs that are out there and making this transition, jump on. There is so much gold, good resources, jobs in Australia in this space that you can find out about. I just think this is such an important conversation, Anshuman. And I just want to open it up for one Final thought from you, if you want to leave someone with any message today, what would that be? No, thank you, Shelley. Uh, I think I'm going back to the point that I made earlier. That's the one thing if I would want you to leave with, which is uh, take a 20-year veteran who has tried all these different kinds of things to tell you that I have never seen profit and purpose combined in such an incredible way before. Uh, I think you can make an incredibly successful career uh, helping the world transition into a, a more uh, a greener world, while, of course, being uh, highly connected to uh, the people around you, the communities around you, and your own children who understand why you're doing what you're doing. So shoot me a good reason on on why you would not work in climate, and I hopefully I can, I can tell you uh, uh, that you might not be right. Uh, this is incredible work here. <laughs> 
I love it. And I love the impact that you're having. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us all the way from California. I really appreciate your time, Anshuman. And we're going to have all the details of how people can connect with you in the show notes. Make sure you check out the website, Teradu. And I just want to say thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much, Charlie, for having me. This is really fun. Awesome. Hey, well, if you enjoyed the episode, make sure you share it with someone and leave us a five-star rating and review. We will talk soon. Thanks for hanging out. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we live and work and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to this podcast. Before you do anything meaningful with your money, you need to be able to control your money. I can help. The Glen James Spending Plan is a complete spending plan budgeting system that will show you how to manage your money. It includes a downloadable spreadsheet that will tell you how much to put into what account each week and you will get control over your money within two pay cycles. Thousands of people have used the Glen James Spending Plan and it is now free. So download the Glen James Spending Plan and enroll today. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.